Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. He is risen. You sound like hopeful people. <laughs> and having been through what was a, a heavy Lenten series, where we looked at that slow and painful road to the cross, having walked through the Passion Week, it is definitely feeling lighter. Listening to you sing, listening to you raise your voices, I hear the hope. I hear the lightness, the sense of the resurrection coming from your lungs and from your expression. And I ask you, where does that hope come from? Where does that hope come from? Around 111 years ago to this day almost, the Titanic sank. It hit a rock or an iceberg in the ocean at about 11.40 p.m. It was a boat that was described as unsinkable. In fact, one of the engineers who built it made the claim that not even God Almighty himself could sink this ship. On board were over 2,300 people. 17 millionaires and their families made up the upper deck. They paid a quarter of a million dollars each for their tickets in today's money to come across the United States. As you went down the decks and you got to the lowest deck of all, the paupers who were coming to the new world to make a new life paid $60, just $60 in today's money for a ticket on the Titanic to come to the United States. She went down fast. The ship sank in less than three hours. And the senior crew of the boat they knew that it was a lost cause very early. As soon as they knew the boat was going down and they knew that the rescue boats were about five hours away, they knew that it was hopeless. They knew if they jump in the water, it wouldn't be hypothermia that would kill them. It would be a heart attack from the shock of the cold. They didn't even try to survive. They chose instead to go down with the ship. Imagine what that would have been like to have been a senior crew member, an officer on the Titanic. It had been a week. You were there when they celebrated the launch of the Titanic, all the fanfare that was associated with that. You were connected to that. You were part of all that excitement. You would celebrate it, 
with your family and friends, that you had got the opportunity to be part of this, to be part of this maiden voyage. And you took your place on deck with pride as you sailed out of Southampton on a voyage that was going to redefine North Atlantic or Atlantic Ocean crossing. It felt like you were part of ushering in a new world. The excitement and expectation, it gave you energy. But now, minutes before the ship's about to sink, you are overwhelmed, exhausted. Everything is lost. You gave all your energy. You are spent. Every dream is shattered. Despair overcomes you. You know it's over. You are just going through the motions. All hope has evaporated. Now I want you to imagine you're one of these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James or Salome. It's been a week. It started out great. All the fanfare around the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, you were connected to all that excitement. You helped prepare and celebrate the Passover meal with family and with friends. And you were there in the background when Jesus cleaned the temple tables, overturned the tables, and cursed the fig tree. It felt like you were part of ushering in a new world. The excitement and the expectation, it gave you energy. This man treated you as if you were somebody. Now you're overwhelmed and exhausted. Everything is lost. You are spent. Every dream is shattered. Despair overcomes you. You know it's over, but you go through the motions anyway. All hope has evaporated. You come across this man at the tomb, and he says three things to you, three sentences that we're going to look at. And although we've heard them so many times that they seem normal or ordinary or sensible to us, each of those, sensible, those sentences is actually weird and wild and strangely out of place. The first sentence, which we'll summarize with the word crucified, is this. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene, oh, Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. The second sentence, which we'll call risen, is this one. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And the third sentence is this. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This one we will call go. Three sentences that we will look at. Crucified, risen, and go. Crucified. In chapter 15, Mark has made it very clear that Jesus is dead. In verse 43, the body is taken down from the cross. In verses 44 and 45 of the previous chapter, the centurion reports to Pilate, he's dead. He's really dead. And this is a centurion who's used to crucifixions, who knows what death is. He's, in a sense, giving the final, signing the death warrant, saying it's done. If he'd been wrong, he would have lost his life. And then that body is placed in a tomb in verse 46. Jesus is dead. Mary Magdalene, the mother, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they lived the story. They saw him die on the cross. It's over and they know it. These fraught, hopeless, and emotionally exhausted women are going through the motions, as we said. And they don't even know how they're going to get into the tomb when they get there. Look at verse 3, where they ask themselves, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
This feels like a sad exercise becoming a pointless one. Things are dismal, the other followers are in hiding, everyone is consumed with grief because they've lost a friend or fear. What happened to him could happen to us too. Or powerlessness. There's nothing they can do. They're sitting in that space where everything just feels hopeless. And there's been no closure, no chance to say goodbye, thank you, sorry, I love you, whatever needed to be said has not been said. The shadow of death is cold and close. These women have come to pay tribute to a dead body, to anoint a corpse. And the angel says to them, the stranger, the messenger at the gate, at the tomb, he says to them, he doesn't ask them a question, he just makes a statement. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. Now, it seems super obvious, doesn't it? Sort of talk about making an obvious statement. And the first thing you might ask is, why don't you lead with the big news? He has risen. Why do you start with this sentence? And don't you think it's a bit of an odd thing to say? They're looking for a body, not a person. And why didn't bring up the crucifixion? This is a little traumatizing. Why not just ask, are you looking for Jesus' body? Seems like the natural, appropriate question to ask. But no, this angel says, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. This is such an odd statement. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. Now, there's a reason for this. The angels want the angel wants these women to know that God is in control. He wants them to realize something, that Jesus, the man from Nazarene, the man, the fully human man who ate and slept and worked and walked and breathed and washed and bled and died, was crucified. And although they didn't realize it at the time and they haven't realized it until this point, it was always going to happen. Jesus had mentioned it so many times in his ministry, but you just can't hear what you can't make sense of. How can a saviour die? How can the Jewish Messiah save his people by hanging on a cross? Now, today we know, of course, that this was the only way he could save his people. These women are being reminded that the cross was always part of the story. It had to happen. They are being reminded that Jesus' cry from the cross, Telestai, it is finished, better translated, it is paid in full, it's what you wrote on the top of a bill once it had been cancelled. That it's happened, that Jesus has made this statement, that the crucifix, that the crucifixion was always meant to be. The women are being told that the crucifixion is in fact the unavoidable first step in the living hope of Easter. Now the second set of words, the one we call risen, that this angel, this stranger at the tomb says to these women is, he has risen, he's not here. Now, if it was hard for these women to believe that he was dead, if they were just coming to terms with that, if they were dealing with their grief and their fear and their powerlessness, how much harder would it be to believe that he's alive? Don't you feel for these women? 
In verse 6, it says, do not be alarmed. In fact, that really should be translated, don't be terrified. He has risen. He is not here. And we see later in verse 8 that they are trembling and bewildered. Don't be terrified. Can you think of anything more terrifying? Dead people don't come back to life. If nothing made sense before, even less makes sense now. How would you feel? How would you deal with the empty tomb? How would you deal with having everything you know turned on its head? Now, this is still a stumbling block for many people today. Dead people don't rise from the dead, do they? And yet the tomb is empty. And this is a historical miracle on which the Christian faith depends. So many witnesses, over 500 people, attest to seeing the resurrected Christ. This did not happen in a dark corner. God intervened historically, unequivocally, publicly. The fearful, grief-stricken disciples had their lives profoundly changed when they encountered the risen Christ. God is intervening here cosmically. Some would say he's overturning the natural order. Dead men don't rise. This is not how it's supposed to be. But in reality, we should say he's returning the world back to the natural order, undoing evil and chaos, conquering death. It is these things that are not the way it's supposed to be. And you wonder how much did these women understand? Mark began his gospel with the sentence, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God to us sounds like a very natural term. But in fact, at that time, it was almost seditious. It had revolutionary overtones. It was a term that was used for kings. It was used by all the Roman emperors. To call yourself the Son of God was to claim to, be in, to have great authority. By using this title, Son of God, Mark begins his gospel by claiming Jesus of Nazareth has authority over all things. Here, in the final chapter of his gospel, he's solidifying this claim with proof. The great conquering king that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey a week ago has destroyed the power of evil and conquered death. The king is risen, the king is alive, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess he is Lord. Now, our assumption that dead men don't rise does not fit the reality of the first Easter Sunday. Confronting this by confronting the conquering king, the risen Lord, is the joyful second step to Easter hope. It changes everything. So we come to the third sentence that this stranger, that this angel, that this, this messenger at the tomb said to these women. We called it go. And let me read the sentence again. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Crucifixion, it is not the end of the story. Resurrection, it is not the end of the story. These are the beginning of the story. Crucifixion hope leads to resurrection hope, and resurrection hope leads to kingdom hope. 
There is this bigger story being written here, and the women and the disciples and you and I are being written into it. At North Point, we talk about this a lot. To embrace Christ crucified and Christ resurrected, Christ resurrected, resurrected means to wrestle with what it means to write our small stories into the big story of redemptive history. Christ's death and resurrection change everything. They turn everything on its head. These women's lives, these disciples' lives, our lives. We're kingdom people now. Like the women, we are told to go and do kingdom business. And we're told that we will meet Jesus there when we do. But today, on this Easter Sunday, I want to draw your attention to the first part of the verse of 7. The phrase, go tell his disciples and Peter. His disciples and Peter. Isn't Peter one of the disciples? The angel seems to have a strange way with words. Each sentence has this tiny little twist in it. The pious, the early church father tells us that the Gospel of Mark used the eyewitness account of Peter to put the narrative together. And Peter here is making sure that Mark does not whitewash his failure. Remember, it is Peter that has denied Christ three times. It is Peter who knows that Christ knows that, the look. Christ looked at him when the cock crowed for the third time and he whipped, wept bitterly at his betrayal of Jesus. Peter stood back on the cross when Jesus breathed his last. He heard the sigh, but he didn't hear the words in the sigh. It was John's gospel that we hear the word to tell us die. It is finished, it is done, the debt is paid, the debt is cancelled. Peter didn't hear it because he was standing back because he was ashamed, he was pulling back. He did not feel restored, he did not feel like he was part, he did not feel like he belonged. The angel is saying here, go tell the disciples and make sure Peter knows too. Don't let him get caught up in his own failure. The crucified Christ has paid it in full. The resurrected Christ is king. Peter's failure has been dealt with. His place is assured, not because of what he has done, but despite what he has done. No one earns their place in the big story of redemptive history. We are all written in by grace and by grace alone. And this is the third grace-filled, certain Easter hope. We are kingdom people by grace and by grace alone. Now, the Titanic had many classes of passages, from that upper deck with the millionaires right down to the pauper's deck on the bottom. And all the decks that were in between. Now, and life is a little bit like that, isn't it? And it's easy to be consumed with which deck we are on and how we get to the deck above, or how we get we avoid being pushed down to the deck below. And we stay in that sort of self-consumed, world-consumed mode until we hit an iceberg. And at that point, reality hits a new paradigm is at play. When you hit the iceberg, you realize only two classes matter. Those whose lives are saved and those whose lives are lost. 
There's a very famous photo on the entrance to the headquarters. There's a picture of the entrance to the headquarters of the White Star shipping line in Liverpool that was taken the week after the Titanic went down. And on one side of the entrance is a big white board with the heading known to be saved. And on the other side of the entrance is a big white board with the words known to be lost. And all the names as they souls were accounted for were added to one board or the other. When we hear the words, he is crucified, we think to telestai, it is finished, paid in full. This is the first Easter hope. When, he hear the, when we hear the words, he is risen, everything we have been taught is turned upside down. A dead man did rise and conquer death. This is the second Easter hope. When we hear the words, go, tell the disciples and Peter, we know that we are part of a new story. Not because of what we've done, but despite of what we've done. And this is the third Easter hope. Our certain hope is in nothing less than the crucifixion, resurrection, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the story of Easter. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, this is the story. This day is the story. This is the climax of the story. And we wait, Father, for the second climax, your second coming. We are so grateful for you as creator and sustainer. But today, remember, you are not just as redeemer, but restorer. Resurrection King. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.